guy. Ever wonder what it's like to face a 350-pound lineman who wants to smash you into the ground? I know what that feels like. Scott Mitchell here, and I want to tell you about my podcast, Helmets Off, where I talk about the pressures of being an NFL quarterback and some of the other pressures pro athletes face when the helmet is off. It's a podcast, and you can get it free on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and at kslsports.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Justin Kamine. In order to have the greatest impact in the world, you must also have the greatest economics. And if you can make it an economic decision in the world, all of a sudden you can have the greatest impact. So it's a very kind of symbiotic relationship, which I think I'm, what I'm talking about is not anything that no one already, everyone already knows. Um, but it is a different approach. I mean, look at the solar industry. Solar industry, seven. Justin, thanks for making time. Thank you. So, so tell us your title and tell us what you're up to. <laughs> Uh, so my name is Justin Kamine. Uh, I am one of the co-founders of a company called KDC Ag, and then also a managing member of the Kamine Development Corporation. Um, and you know, for people who don't know, big players in infrastructure, you guys have done like three and a half billion in infrastructure. Is that that's right? Correct. And you know, solar, cojon, telecom stuff. Um, but you're also kind of trying to take the world by storm <laughs> with uh, some of these other investments. And um, let's start with uh, let's start with the um, the food work. You know, this idea of how much food we throw away, right? Um, when you think about, well, let's do this first. Can you talk about what the technology is, and then let's talk about this philosophy of yours that I that I'm really in love with? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, so the whole family background of infrastructure really looks at per, uh, society's problems at the kind of large scale and how do we really change that and recognizing that infrastructure can change society quickly and efficiently so long as it's done economically and with the environment. Um, so about six years ago, we started to really focus on to how do we use that platform. It's a, uh, it's a family development team. We're re- very entrepreneurial. We want to go after big ideas. Um, and focus that on to some of the world's largest issues, and that was food waste. Um, you might know the stats. 40% of all the food that's grown is thrown away. If food waste was a country, it would be the third largest greenhouse gas emitter, U.S., China, food waste. So there's obviously a huge problem. And uh, so we started to really look around and figure out and find um, a, couple t- a team of scientists that was really trying to tackle this issue at a, in a way that was uh, tangibly and able to be sized and scaled to the infrastructure level. Um, So six years ago, uh, we came up with the thesis that your human digestion process is arguably the most efficient user of food, and why can't we just create a technology that we could scale to an infrastructure level that mimics that process? Um, So the core emphasis is that we actually keep the cold chain intact um, from the supermarket. So when we pick up this food, we give them both the meat bin um, and a produce bin that they keep in each of their sections. They keep the cold uh, or the, the food in the certain temperatures. 
Um, and we actually collect that every single day. We, of course, maximize the donations to local food banks because that's the best and maximum usage of food. But the next best maximum usage of that food is actually to come to our process where we actually take the same food that you and I were eating this morning. We put it through the grinders, very similar to your teeth. We use food-grade enzymes, very similar to your stomach, and quite literally within three hours we've, we can digest 160 tons of food down to the molecular level of amino acids, simple sugars, and carbohydrates. We then pasteurize it for pathogen safety, um, even though it's all 100% USDA-certified food. And then we blend it very similar to how wine is blended for consistency. And then quite literally the very next day we can take the same food that you and I were eating and we can actually dry that product um, down to a feed composition that can uh, meet the dietary needs of a chicken, pig, and a pet the very next day. So we can create a 100% closed-loop agricultural system um, and maximize the value and the usage of those nutrients. If you look at the F- or FDA or the EPA food hierarchy, um, it always says that the, me- the maximum usage of that food is to be fed to humans and then to animals. Now, all of a sudden, we have a 21st century technology that can work with the supermarkets and create a feed product that can fit into the existing feed mill infrastructure of companies and create this closed-loop story um, in a way that enables companies to continue business as usual. Well, and so I'm, you know, you, you've been we've been talking about some of those corporations that are highly interested in this. Yeah. Um, are there any of those that you are al- allowed to talk about? their interest at this level yet or not so much? Um, not so much, but uh, we are working with all the largest corporations because they recognize that this is one of the largest problems. Um, even the most efficient corporations still throw away 800,000 to a million tons of food per year. I mean, it's just these numbers are huge. Um, and they all recognize that they, this needs to be an economical solution first, followed by the sustainability. Um, so what we do is we actually... Uh, pick it up for free so they save tens of millions of dollars per year Um, our process is efficient and then we can provide our feed product that can either be shipped in rail or on truck that can go directly into the feed mill infrastructure of the major corporations that are growing your chickens and your pigs or producing your pet feed Um, so our whole philosophy and belief is that it has to be an economic decision first and then also fit into the existing infrastructure and then followed by the sustainability. And if you can hit on all of those kind of three kind of key pillars, then all of a sudden you have the interests of these world's largest corporations. And you pair that with our infrastructure dynamic. Um, talk about the $3.5 billion of infrastructure. Um, we built a $2.5 billion telecom in a company that spanned 40 cities. Um, my father helped build uh, 600 megawatts worth of natural gas cogen facilities. So this size and the scale of really figuring out ways to operate at a, at a significant level is really the emphasis and the key kind of background of what we are doing in the food waste, where how do we really work with the largest supermarket companies and the largest feed mill companies of the world um, in a closed-loop system that really makes it a unique, sustainable solution Um, And our whole goal over the next three to five years is that we believe that we can actually feasibly completely eliminate food waste from supermarkets across the nation in that amount of time. Using large-scale infrastructure, using rapid deployment, the family kind of background of developing, owning, and operating infrastructure, pairing that with a unique patented technology um, and an operating scale that fits into the existing infrastructure. Well, you know, so thinking about the, you know, the largest fast food chains in the world, the largest retailers in the world that 
that we're not going to name. Okay. <laughs> um, what's what's uh, I think why I'm kind of excited about this interview is, you know, we at the show at Mylan in general, we're working with managers at large corporations, senior executives in in government and military and corporate world, and they're looking to help. So many of them, they see the fast eating the slow. You yeah. know, as technology comes out of Silicon Valley and and really, you know, you see the seers of the world going away and you see the valuations of the companies that are replacing them. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to get left behind. Yeah. And they're realizing we can't just have one smart guy at the company. We need more people to be thinking the way those folks, you know, the fast that are eating the slow. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think about, you know, the, this attention you've got from, you know, such extremely household name organizations at the highest level that are working with you. And to me, this wisdom of the idea of we, we all have the shoulds, you know, the, the way we, we would like the world to work differently or better. And it, it, it changes flavor for flavor for different people, yeah. right? But this idea of shoulds aren't enough. Mm-hmm. Let's make the math work first. Yep. And you can get all the shoulds you want if you can get the economics. <laughs> um, if, if I'm a leader at a company and I'm, I'm trying to internalize that, I'm trying to help my people internalize that, can you talk more about this idea of of shoulds are important, taking care of the world is important, and it's not enough? Yeah, I think uh, I often say everyone inherently wants to be sustainable. No one's taking a 55-gallon drum of oil and just dumping it into the ocean. No one acts that way. At least 99% of the people don't. Um, Yet how do we actually pair what is important to the public companies, which is shareholder value and that quarterly returns, with the dynamic that we all need to change. And we all recognize that society is going down a path of, I don't, I don't call it climate change anymore, because I think that's just a politicizing conversation. It's really resource depletion. And we can truly, everyone can understand if we have 10 apples and there's only five people on the earth, well, okay, great, we have a good supply and demand. If now all of a sudden we have 15 people on earth and we only have now 10 apples or even nine apples because production decreases, well, okay, that's a balance issue, that's a problem. So I think we got to redefine kind of the conversation and not make it a politicizing um, focus. But when we talk about kind of the big corporations and finding that entrepreneur within, um, I think we all need to understand and recognize that the big corporations have the capability to really help solve the world's problems. It's not going to be just these kind of Elon Musk types of guys that we're going to have to wait for the next Teslas. We're going to have to wait for all these corporations or these new kind of companies to really change the world. I think we need to rationally recognize that these big corporations call it the 10 biggest food companies, which food arguably is the most or one of the largest greenhouse gas emitters as a total kind of um, industry, um, that they truly, if you can change a Tyson from non-sustainable to maybe 20% more sustainable, well, you just positively impacted 300 million people and a billion chickens in the supply chain. Okay, so that's really making a rational, huge change in society. Um, So I think it's recognizing in the corporations, how do we enable people to um, look into the future and enable the dynamic where Yes, this is the way society needs to go. It needs to be economical first because you need to drive that shareholder value and you need to continue to grow that. But I think that more and more shareholders, which I think is a credit to the Blackstones and the Michael Loeb's of the world, sitting there saying the consumers are desiring something more sustainable now. 
transparency in the supply chain, better and healthier ingredients. Um, I mean, you don't see companies buying the BS type of kind of products anymore. They're, they're truly starting to change. Well, how do we help enable that change and, and, and spur that even that much greater? A lot of it's consumer behavior, and a lot of it's providing them economical solutions that are more environmentally sensible and can actually get to a size and the scale that actually makes sense for the Walmarts and the Tysons and the Albertsons of the world um, to really grasp onto. And I think we all have to recognize that, yes, big corporations have a stranglehold, and I think they've done some pretty terrible things in the past. Um, but I think rationally recognizing that they also have the capability, probably the only capability, to truly change the world. And so we need to go to and have a congenial, friendly conversation that, yes, we need new technologies and all these entrepreneurs and developers to continue to think of the next and best things, but it needs to be paired and, uh, with a rational understanding that the Walmarts of the world aren't going anywhere. They're too big, too, too large, and they have too much power in the supply chain. Well, that might be a negative, but actually I look at that as a huge positive because they can truly impact billions of farmland acres and mil millions of people instantly if you give them a solution that actually makes economical sense and works with the environment. So I look at the big corporations as a tremendous benefit to where we are as society because I truly believe that we need to change over the next five or ten years in a matter of magnitude higher than what we are even having the conversations about now. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think what's so exciting to me about the approach, and, and you guys have obviously been successful with it, but is um, this idea of holding yourselves to the higher standard of not just coming up with a technical solution, but holding yourself to the higher standard of a technical technical solution that makes the economic sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you and I have a number of friends in common. I think about the kind of, you know, at the Forbes conference we were at together last yep. year, all these things, right? And I think about a number of the folks we hang out with who they get really upset and they do a lot of whining about, hey, I've got a technical option. Why can't people just ignore the economics and do what I want them to? Mm -hmm. And this idea of you guys holding yourselves to that higher level of accountability of solving the technical problem and then going past it to making it economically make sense it's it's like actually caring about the problems of the bureaucrats, whether it's government or, mm -hmm. you know, giant corporations where s we know those people. They actually want to do what's right for the world. But when they're measured by the stock market on the quarterly earnings, their hands are tied if our solutions, if our innovations cannot be that that real financial mm -hmm. viability, they can't deliver on their good intentions. And we've brought them something that um, it's it's almost like worse that they know there's something good they're not allowed to do <laughs> because of the way they're measured, yeah. right? And it's almost like you have taken the time to empathize with their problem and not just come up with a technical solution, but to solve, to, to, to remove the other barriers so they actually could deliver on their good intentions. Yeah, I mean, our whole philosophy is that in order to have the greatest impact in the world, you must also have the greatest economics. And if you can make it an economic decision in the world, all of a sudden you can have the greatest impact. So it's a very kind of symbiotic relationship, which I think I'm, what I'm talking about is not anything that no one already, every, everyone already knows. Um, but it is a different approach. I mean, you look at the solar industry. Solar industry seven, ten years ago was a higher cost product, and we were really truly relying upon 
federal incentives and 1603 and all the federal grants. Yes, we still benefit from some of that now, but it enabled the technology to go from a higher cost to now one of the cheapest solutions of energy. So I think that technological understanding and desire and understanding of the, the benefits of what this is doing for society, whether it be jobs or energy independence, um, all of a sudden enables the technology to get down to the cheaper level. Um, I think what oftentimes is missed is all of this existing infrastructure, whether it be the production of corn and soy, whether it be the production of oil, um, you, you name it throughout every industry, they're, they have such a stranglehold on it because, yes, they have economies of scale, and they've been doing this for 20, 30 years. And by the way, they all get a tremendous amount of subsidies. They still do. Oil still, I think, gets like $8 per uh, gallon for every $1 that renewables gets. Yet no one talks about that because it's embedded in the old tax laws in the 30s and 40s. Um, so how do we really start to pair apples to apples but also recognizing that, yes, federal government can help incentivize things to occur, but I'm not one to be relying upon the federal government anymore to continue to spur innovation. I think uh, we were at the UN, and uh, the head of the UN climate change was talking about, okay, well, it's not going to be governments, it's not going to be legislation, it's really going to be up to the private markets to decide. And that really hit home. It's like, okay, well, how do we as a, f a small family office um, – try to have an enormous impact in the world. Well, we've got to find the right technologies that can make the right economics. It hasn't been easy. We haven't always had the right economics. Um, it's been six years to seven years of development and trying to figure it all out. But now I think we're getting to that solution where we're on the cutting edge and the verge of solving food waste, providing the actual first-ever carbon-neutral feed, creating a carbon-neutral animal production system, that now actually economically incentivizes consumers to go and act in a carbon-neutral way when they buy their chicken, buy their pet feed, well, all of a sudden, we've actually just priced carbon into the marketplace, and we've created, quote-unquote, a cap-and-trade by doing so. So it certainly did not start off that way with the technology, um, and it's just kind of morphed into this kind of dynamic where, yeah, we've put a lot of our time and energy and money at risk to try to figure this all out, um, and now it's time, okay, how do we really launch this rocket ship in a big way? What what better, bigger way than working with some of the biggest corporations to say, you know what, this is an economically viable solution. This is the way society needs to go. And this is the new brand. Every All these corporations are coming out with their carbon-neutral claims. Well, all of a sudden, this closed-loop system can actually create that in a way that's economical in the way that the consumers are desiring. They're wanting transparency. They're wanting that kind of sustainability um, initiatives from these corporations, now all of a sudden we can provide it to them. And so that's what's exciting. You're like solving their problems. Think about the marketing benefits. The, there's so many good things for them, right? Yeah. yeah. We, I we, sit, we sit with them all the time. They go, great. We know the marketing benefits and the consumers absolutely love this. Let's talk about the, the balance sheet and the income statement first. And if that can... <laughs> yeah, am if, I allowed to? Right? Am I allowed to? Exactly. Well, I want to talk about, I mean, this whole um, very like common sense approach of you know, take care of the pocketbook first and then we can save the world mm -hmm. kind of thing. Um, you talked a little earlier about, you know, your you and your brother and, and the family and how you guys kind of feel like you get to stand on the shoulders of all the work your dad has done. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about his story? Sounds like he's an inspirational guy to you. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's my hero. 
Um, so he started off installing wastewater heat recovery systems and boiler rooms at all the uh, paper mills and greenhouses around New York and New Jersey. Um, small kind of plumbing business with his father. Um, long story short, uh, when FERC passed PURPA, which was enabling independent power to occur, uh, he mortgaged his house four times and helped build, own, and operate uh, what became one of the largest independent power portfolios on the East Coast. Uh, so we had about 600 megawatts of natural gas. Over, because uh, that's that's a that is a big story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that was a cliff notes. <laughs> that, was, that was super cliff notes. That was like cliff with one F. Yeah. Okay. yeah. But, um, uh, so so talk about this. What period of time did he go from a plumber to the largest independent power producer in New York? Yeah, I, I mean, he wasn't a plumber, plumber. But I know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably, I don't actually truly know when he truly started. I think 83, and then by the time the first project was actually finalized in commercial operations, I think 86. So, um, but I think if I was to peel back the onion yeah. and uh, really assess as to how he was able to do of course, he's brilliant and was an engineer and took the, the kind of chutzpah to actually go off and try to do this and risk everything. Um, but if I was to relate it to the way I operate now, he built a relationship with those greenhouses and paper mills, and he knew those guys and, and knew that he knew the engineers that he was working with at that time when he was just installing the boilers and, and wastewater heat recovery systems. And that relationship and that capability to establish a friendship vibe as well as also a working understanding and appreciation and uh, credibility enabled him to then say, well, why don't I cite a natural gas cogen because you need the cheap steam and the utility company could use the electricity and that could be my qualified facilities. Um, if he hadn't been in his father's business, I don't necessarily think or know if he would have been able to build on that. Um, so I take that human approach very translatable to my businesses. We asked, we talked about, okay, what is the value of doing this? I, it, I just want good people to do good things. And I don't know where this relationship continues to grow. Um, but I do know that I will always be your, a friend and a confidant and, and supportive of all good things uh, from people. Um, so that human approach and that connection beyond just a business connection, I think so many people are just transactional. And I truly love sitting here and talking to people and, and understanding their story and understanding their kids and what makes them excited about and passionate in the world. Yeah, it might not, might not be installing a boiler, but that then led to something that ended up giving him a platform that then enabled me to have a platform when I grew up with my brother say, okay, well, let's go off and change the world. And if it hadn't been for those relationships and those small connections that you can't tangibly understand at that time when you're making them, but you look back and you're like, wow, if I hadn't been nice to that person or been really friendly, um, I wouldn't have built these businesses. And I think outside of all the amazing things that he did, he then built a, a telecom company that carried one-third of the nation's dial-up when he had to listen to that annoying dan to dan dan to log on to the Internet. Um, that was all coming through our infrastructure because GE then funded that as well. Um, and that GE relationship spanned 30 years. Now the, one of the top guys from GE is also on our board. So it's that friendship and that relationship and that honesty that I think is so important to how myself and my brother approach business now. 
where, yeah, what we're trying to do is trying to tackle some of the world's largest issues. Food waste is the third largest greenhouse gas emitter because it's a tough problem to solve, and it's a huge problem. Um, same thing with solar or lollyware, which is creating bioplastics. It's like, so you're going to go through ups and downs. We do it all the time, and we go, okay, well, this isn't going to work, or this is going to work, and let's keep trying to kind of iterate. We talked about making it an economic solution for these companies. When we started off six years ago, it certainly was not. And so how do you continue to innovate and, and create as you grow? Um, I think all that stems from, A, having good people around you. But the only way to have good people around you is to have that honesty and transparency um, and understanding. I think all of our employees sit around the table, and they all know every issue on the table. Fundraising, technology, development, business relationships. And I think if I was to look back at my father's kind of growth and he went from nothing boy in Clifton to developing billions of dollars of infrastructure. Um, that, that human connection and that relationship is truly, I think the, the essence of everything. I love it. Well, let's talk more about this on part two of the interview. Um, before we end part one, if people want to follow, uh, the ag company and, and just like see what you guys are doing, where's the best place for them? Yeah, so uh, we, of course, have a website, kdcag.com, um, and then I'm pretty kind of vocal on Instagram, so it's J underscore K-Mine, K-A-M-I-N-E. I love it. Yeah. Okay, everybody, tune in for part two. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York, and I met a guy named Brent Thompson very successful entrepreneur. He's former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now. But I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.